Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We all know those collective maxims on success. Nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know, and winners never quit. We've heard them so often that we often accept them as articles of faith. But are they really true? My guest today says yes and no. His name is Eric Barker, and he's the author of one of the few blogs I regularly read, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. There he takes a look at what actual research says about these tried and true maxims of success and provides a nuanced, often counterintuitive look at them. He's recently taken some of his best writing from eight years of the blog, expanded on it, and turned it into a book by the same name. And today on the show, Eric and I discuss why most of the ideas we have about success are wrong and what we can do to be better advice sleuths. Eric shares, for example, research that shows why high school valedictorians are less likely to become millionaires or influential leaders and what that teaches us about the importance of knowing ourselves. He then breaks down the idea that nice guys always finish last and how it's both true and false at the same time. He then discusses why grit can be overrated sometimes and why winners always quit. And we end our conversation discussing why being a glad-handing extrovert can both garner success and sow the seeds of failure and how the idea of work-life balance is making people more miserable than ever and what you can do about it. Lots of fascinating tidbits in this show that you can implement right away to improve your life. And there's plenty of great cocktail party fodder this show as well. After the show's over, make sure you check out the show notes at awim.is slash Barker, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. All right, Eric Barker, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Brett. It's great to be here. So I've been a, a big fan of your blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. We were talking about this before we get on, before we started the show, that you're one of the few blogs I still have in my RSS feed reader. I use Feedly. We were talking about how we need to make RSS feeds great again. Like we, they're due a comeback, I think. That's seriously, that's the way I get the majority of, of my news. I, I don't know. RSS is still king. It is. You know, you know, we were talking about Facebook has an algorithm, so you don't get to see all the stuff you're following. You're saying Twitter's too noisy. I, I think the same. I, I don't enjoy Twitter. So if you're listening to this and have never used an RSS feed before, you are missing out. Go to Feedly.com, sign up for an account, and subscribe to Barking Up the Wrong Tree and the art of manliness. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. All right, we both have full feeds, so you can actually read all of our content right there in the feed. You don't have to go to our site. It's all right there. Absolutely. So anyways, that's our plug for RSS feeds. All right, so anyways, you turned your book or your blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, into a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, kind of condensed some of the best stuff and added some new things as well. Your blog is unique. And the reason why I like it is because you offer you know, success, advice on how to be successful in different domains of your life. But the advice you give like is nuanced and it's counterintuitive oftentimes. I'm curious, why did you start the blog? What were you, what was your goal? What, what you're trying to capture with your writing on barking up the wrong tree? I mean, the, 
the thing for me was I was kind of, uh, kind of at a crossroads in my life where I was, I was between careers and wasn't sure what I was doing. And, you know, we get so much advice. We don't know what's real, what's not, you know, before the internet, you know, good information, you know, information was hard to come by. Now, post-internet, good information is, is hard to come by. We, you know, it's like you hear tons of answers, but you don't know what's legit. So I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole, like looking at research, looking at what experts had to say. And there's this great quote from William Gibson that I love, where he said that the, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I believe that we have answers to a lot of the questions we want to know about happiness, success, productivity, relationships, but the information is not evenly distributed. It's sometimes it's locked up in, you know, dusty journals or ivory towers in academia. And, you know, I just wanted to, to get these answers that are, that are already out there. And, and it's been a, a journey for me, but, but, you know, basically I was looking for answers myself and I'm, I'm glad a lot of people have joined me for the ride. So we'll get into some specifics here in a bit, but let's talk generally, like high level here. Why do you think a lot of the advice out there on the web, particularly the web, because there's like just this whole, there's whole like genres of blogs dedicated to being successful, finding happiness. It's at best incomplete or at worst, just plain wrong. Why do you, what's going, why do you think like some of these, these ideas just keep continuing to get repeated over and over and over again, even though people know it's wrong? I, I mean, you know, you have... I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, number number one is, you know, we have the cognitive biases that we all we all have in our brains. There are some things. Sometimes we don't want to hear the truth. Sometimes we want we want our beliefs reinforced. We don't we don't actually want to want to hear something different. And you know, and sh- share counts, like counts, are all responding to to what to what people often feel. You know, uh, not necessarily what is what is accurate and what is right. But beyond that. You know, I mean, a lot of websites have agendas. You know, they're they're not necessarily trying to deliver factual information. They're trying to they're trying to tell people what they want to hear or sell things, and and that and that that those kind of competing interests can cause problems as well. So you know, it's very the issue is right now. It's very easy. Everybody's got a printing press. It's very easy to get stuff out there, and so we're just there's just a deluge of, of information and it's hard to figure out, you know, what's legit, what's not. And frankly, most people don't want to read academic studies. Sometimes I don't want to read academic studies. So, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of filters that are, are blocking people from getting stuff that's, you know, not necessarily perfect, but, but more legit than, than some of the mainstream information. And even if something isn't wrong completely, oftentimes I've found that it might not work for me, Right. Because like the, a lot of the advice out there, they use sort of like a blanket advice. This works for everybody, but that's like as we'll talk about here in a little bit. Like that's not necessarily true. Oh, I I totally agree. Especially when you're talking about you know stuff that relates to psychology. You know, you there are issues of of personality. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is you know un- understanding who you are. You know, to to some degree, most personality traits and many fundamental personality traits are ridiculously stable over time. You know, when 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 you look at people. You know, when they're a child and when they're old, many qualities stay the same. And so often, you know, it's an issue of accepting who you are and aligning yourself with environments that will allow you to thrive and succeed you know, not so much changing. And when you look at a lot of the research, you know, everything from management gurus like Peter Drucker to a lot of the work on signature strengths by Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, what you see is them saying, don't spend an enormous amount of time trying to bring up your weaknesses. You're, you're really going to be, you know, swimming upstream trying to do that. You're much, you're, your time is much better spent improving your strengths. You know, that's, that's where your resources are best spent. So, 
honestly, it's like accepting who you are and moving towards that. It's, it's a, it's a much better way than, than trying to, to, you know, this general advice isn't always going to work. When you know who you are, you can start to say, this will work for me. So I'm curious, you know, with your years of writing uh, for Barking Up the Wrong Tree and, you know, the work you did on the book, do you have any like heuristics or mental models you use to judge whether a piece of advice is useful? I mean, I think you mentioned just one, like know yourself is an important one, but any other ones that you use sort of filter things out? I mean, for me, for me, you know, it's like, first and foremost, it's like, okay, you know, you have, you have the basics where it's like, okay, is this from a legitimate university or, or is this, you know, was this a corporate sponsored study? Sometimes those come up Are are there, are there any, you know, issues there in terms of agendas? Those are, those are obvious ones, but I'd say the biggest one I use is, you know, luckily I've been, I've been reading this stuff and posting stuff on the blog for like for eight years and and I used to post like five study abstracts a day six days a week and luckily I've developed a gut of sorts so I'd have to say my biggest one is just that kind of spidey sense where it's like when I hear when I see a study that says hey gratitude improves happiness well I've seen a dozen dozen other studies that that show the show the same thing that's really not going to raise my hackles but when I start to see something that completely contradicts what I've seen before and there's not an element that makes me go, oh, there's not something it's hinging on that makes me start to reconsider things, you know, then I'll start to scratch my head. And and those, you know, eight, nine times out of 10, you know, those aren't great studies. But on the other side, one in 10, sometimes things get overturned. Sometimes, you know, studies get retracted. Sometimes, little things that seem little, small factors end up, you know, making a real critical element, you know, gratitude in this situation might not be so good. So if for me, you know, I'm, I'm usually looking at, you know, the, where the, where's the research coming from? What does it have around it? Who's the research who did it? But a big part of it for me is saying, does this line up with what we've seen before? Or is this some crazy outlier? And if so, you know, why? Is there a legitimate reason or, or not? Okay. I love that. All right. So let's get into the specifics here because there's a lot of great uh, insights and there's a ton in here. So if you, we can't get into this podcast, but um, so that's why I encourage people to go out to get the book. But let's take some of these, I don't know, I don't want to call them tropes. I don't want to call them myths either because like what I found with a lot maxims. of stuff. Maxims. Yeah. There you go. That, you know, we take for tr- something that is true, but sometimes they're not true. So let's take a look. I thought this was interesting. This very counterintuitive research you uncovered about valid Victorians, like high school valid, valid Victorians are less likely to become millionaires or even high powered or influential leaders. What's going on there? Cause like, you know, when you're in school, it's like, you gotta, you're just hammered. You gotta do really well in school. If you want to be a success in life, you gotta be really well in school. If you want to be a leader, What's going on? Why aren't why are there so few valedictorians that end up being become millionaires or leaders? Um, what the what the the research found? I mean, basically, what we're conflating there is that success in school necessarily maps perfectly onto success in life, and and that's and that's not true. I think we all know that to some degree, and the research is proving that out. Where school has very clear rules. Check the boxes, do what you're told, give the right answer, get an A, do well. Life is much more messy, you know, than that. You know, the rules aren't always clear. The rules can be, can be, can be broken sometimes. Sometimes you can go be an entrepreneur, make your own rules. So, so that's what we're seeing. Basically, Karen Arnold did the research at Boston College and she tracked valedictorians. 
And what she found is they do well. You know, it's like they, they go on to get advanced degrees. They end up uh, doing well in their, in their chosen fields. But what happens is valedictorians settle into the system. They do not generally end up leading the system or revolutionizing the system. And that is because the fundamental thing that school does is, is reward compliance. It is not rewarding necessarily. Um, you know, grades only loosely correlate with IQ scores. Uh, actually, standardized tests like the SAT correlate much better with with intelligence scores. So you're not necessarily choosing the students who who are you know have the raw horsepower, uh, raw brain power. You're rewarding students who are really good at complying with rules, and schools very good with that. But once they get outside of it, life's messy. You know, they tend to work in structured environments, play by the rules, and we all know that that doesn't always lead to, to top leadership positions, and it certainly doesn't often lead to revolutionizing the system if what you're focused on is compliance. The other issue that's really critical here is the issue of mastery, and that is that in school, you need to be a generalist. You have to get you have to get A's in history. You have to get A's in English. You have to get A's in math if you're going to get that 4.0 and and do very well. Whereas the real world generally rewards mastery in one arena. If you go to work for you know as a, as an engineer at Google, yeah, your math skills and computer science skills better be top notch. But whether you're you know really kicking ass in terms of uh, English and history, they don't really care. So school is actually teaching you to be a generalist, whereas life rewards being being an expert in one field. So if you say, I absolutely love math and I want to really dive down in math, if you want to be valedictorian, you need to stop studying math and go study English. So kids who, and, and Arnold found this in the research, kids who are really focused on something and really passionate about a subject uh, are actually punished by the, the school system, and they're not encouraged to, to dive down into uh, the areas of expertise that would later reward them. So yeah, we had William DeResowitz on the show a while back ago talking about this in his book, Excellent Sheep, where he just kind of makes the same argument without going to the research, basically, just showing that schools reward compliance, and it's really good at producing, he calls them sheep, um, but excellent sheep, right? People who know how to follow the rules. But I mean, I'm, but as I read this chapter, though, it seemed like you're making the case that, well, okay, with this idea in mind, this doesn't necessarily mean you need to tell your kid to like just do terrible at school and pull them out of school. It depends on what their personality is like, right? In a lot of ways, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, I, I think, you know, the, it's a very polarizing subject because I, I think people that did very well at school are naturally going to want to lean towards the valedictorians and, and people who didn't do well in school or who dropped out might be far more inclined to, to say, yeah, you know, and, and I, and I think what it, it's actually more an issue of what you're saying, where it's personality type, where if you are somebody who is naturally very compliant at rules, good at checking the boxes, hey, the world needs people like that. And if you're somebody who naturally breaks the rules, likes to try new things, you're very creative, you know, then, you know, the world needs people like that, too. It's, it's not that one is good and one is bad and we should necessarily shove all of the kids in one direction or the other. You know, that's, that's the problem. The, the problem is that the system is only set up to reward compliance. So, yes, it's much more about, kind of like we were talking about earlier, it's much more about understanding yourself and then aligning your environment with that because, 
you know, if you are somebody who, you know, checks all the boxes, complies with all the rules, and you find yourself in a very chaotic, creative, unstable environment, it's going to be very hard for you to thrive. And by the same token, if you're, you know, if you're a really creative, dynamic person who questions the rules and wants to try new things, and you find yourself in a place that, you know, like a, a you know, a government institution or, or uh, an accounting firm where everything needs to be done exactly according to these, these uh, specifications, you're going to struggle. You're not going to be happy and you're probably not going to do well. So it's less of an issue of this is good, always good, this is always bad than it is an issue of alignment. Right. I think this, this is really, it's really important to know yourself because there's, I feel like there's like two conflicting like narratives out there. So on the one hand, you have school that rewards compliance, but then on the other hand, you have, I think, you know, you, you're on the internet sort of on the and like, there's like this, like people venerate like the, the rule breakers, the entrepreneurs and blah, like those are the people who are famous and are rewarded handsomely. And so I think there's like, people want that, but I think there's a lot of people who like, you know, they're not, that's not them. And they feel bad because like, oh, I'm not cool. I'm not, inter- I'm not internet cool because I'm not a rule breaker. Or I'm not an entrepreneur. So like knowing yourself, like, no, okay, yeah, I'm a, I'm a compliance guy. I'm a good manager. Those are important. Like that, that's, that I think becomes really key because I can feel like you can have like a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance going on. No, I, I think we, you know, we, we all struggle with that. There's a little bit of grass is greener on the other side of the fence. I mean, the rule breakers, you know, <laughs> you know, being a rule breaker is very cool as long as you're successful. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the, the rule breakers who, who end up unemployed or in jail. You know, we're not, we're not so quick to reward them. And, and on the other hand, you know, the people who play by the rules, it's like, yeah, it's like sometimes they're seen as, you know, as, oh, you're just, you know, you're just doing what you're told your sheep, you know, or on the flip side, frankly, these are the people that keep the world stable. These are the key people that keep, you know, everything running. And these people generally live good, stable, happy lives. So I think there's good and bad on both sides. And I, I but I, but I think it's natural to, to want to try and emotionally polarize it. But like you said, it's more of an issue of, of self-understanding and alignment than it is in terms of, you know, like, like objective right and wrong. Right. All right. So uh, let's move on to the next maxim of success, which is, this is a good one because this is the art of manliness. It's the idea that nice guys finish last. So the idea is if you're not aggressive, you're not a, a beast, you don't take life by the, the bull by the horns, uh, you're going to lose in your career and love. Uh, is that necessarily, is that true? What's, what's really interesting is, is that it's, it's not an easy answer, but it, it's an answer that makes sense. I mean, if you, if you look at the work of Adam Grant, you know, he did, he did a lot of research on givers, people who altruistically give to others, matchers, people who try to keep an even balance of give and take, and then takers, people who try to get as much as possible and, and not give back. And when he initially did the research, what he found was seemed to be nice guys finish last. He found that givers were disproportionately represented at the bottom of success metrics across a number of different fields. But then when he did a thorough review, what he found was the results were actually bimodal, that givers were disproportionately represented at the bottom and at the top. And that, and that kind of jives. That, that makes sense to us. Or we all know some martyr who, who tries too much to help others, gets exploited by takers, doesn't get their own work done. And we also all know somebody who everybody loves, who is really cool, really supportive, and everyone goes out of their way to help this person because they're, they're such a mensch. They're so awesome. So we, we, we kind of get that, that, that nice guys often finish at the very top or the very bottom. And another, another factor that I think is really critical here is short-term, long-term. 
And that is across a number of personality characteristics and elements. In the shorter term, bad often wins. In the longer term, good often wins. When you look, you see, when you see uh, narcissists across the board generally score higher in job interviews, they score higher on first dates. Yet, when you look over time, after a few weeks in a job, narcissists are generally regarded as untrustworthy. And after a few months, uh, relationship satisfaction with narcissists tanks. When Robert Axelrod set up, uh, he set a bunch of algorithms trying to figure out, you know, what what system would work best in in the in the prisoner's dilemma, and what he found is that the bad guys took the high ground very quickly, but over time, programs that were good won out, and it makes sense because we all know that people who rush out to try and get as much for themselves as possible, who self promote, who 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 lie, very often can do well initially, but over time. We usually deal with the same people, you know, over a period of time and we develop a reputation. And once you develop a reputation, unless you can constantly outpace that reputation, people are going to figure it out and people are not going to want to deal with you. And so it makes sense, but I think it's critical to realize that nice guys need to make sure that they're in the top of the success metrics, not the bottom of success metrics, by not letting themselves get abused. And the second thing to realize is that in the short term, hey, bad behavior can pay off, but over the long term, uh, very often it, it rarely does. So, I mean, are you recommending here, like, in the beginning, like, say, of your career, you're trying to do a career move, I don't know, trying to go up the corporate hierarchy, kind of be more assertive? Or should you just be not, like, play nice the entire time because you know in the end it'll help you in the long term? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm not recommending that, that people, that people do, do negative in the beginning and then later play good. What, I, what I'm saying is that, is that people who are intent on, you know, narcissists, people who are much more selfish and self-focused, early on will do well and then will do poorly later. The, the thing is that what we can learn from the, the takers, what we can learn from the negative is that they're generally much more assertive about knowing what they want. And they're also very good at self-promoting. And those are two things that don't necessarily have to be bad. You know, being assertive, again, not, not deceptive, not lying, not cheating, not stealing, but being assertive about what you want is a good, is a good quality. And letting your boss and people around you, not to the point of being a braggart, but letting people know the good work you're doing is important to getting ahead. Now, the lying, cheating, and stealing, not so much. But we, we, need, we need to make sure we're doing those things. Those are things we can take away from the, the negative side. But overall, what you see is people are often, I think it was David DeSteno at Northeastern University who, who does some research into human character. What he found is that very often upon meeting people, we're looking at two qualities. We're looking at two issues. You know, number one, uh, you know, can this person uh, be trusted? And number two, how long am I going to be dealing with this person? And, you know, if there are more steps built into the contract, you're probably going to behave better because you know the other per side is going to have a chance to retaliate. If you're introduced to someone by a friend, you're probably more likely, you know, to treat that person better because you know it can come back to, to haunt you as opposed to somebody you meet randomly on the street. So that 
duration, that length of time that you're going to be dealing with someone encourages good behavior. When you think about, you know, royal families uh, in, in the Middle Ages marrying off their kids to one another to, to basically say, hey, you know, we have, we have family in common now. We're, we're not going to go to war. Things are going to be more stable. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. They call it lengthening the shadow of the future. That tends to promote good behavior because there's not as much of an incentive to, to grab the money and run. Awesome. All right. So bo- bottom line, be a nice guy, but don't be a doormat and you're playing the long game. And don't be afraid to like be a little assertive, not a little, be assertive and promote yourself. Those are, those are some great tips. Another thing that is really critical, Robert Axelrod's research found this and Adam Grant found this as well, is to very much think about the environments you're putting yourself in. Um, when when Adam Grant looked at you know environments, if you're if you're a if you're a giver surrounded by takers, you know you're going to be in in really bad shape. You're going to be exploited, and it's very likely that you might become defensively become a taker yourself. When givers are surrounded by givers, the the positive effects are exponential. And when givers at least have are surrounded by a, a number of matchers, matchers' fundamental belief in justice and equality means that matchers often protect givers. So. For for those nice guys, absolutely. Everything you said, the other thing that's really critical is to just look at the environment you're putting yourself in. Are these good people? When I spoke to Bob Sutton, who's a professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, he said, whenever you walk into a company for a job interview, he said, look around at the people, the people there, because you're going to become like them. They're not going to become like you. And that, you know, we always think of peer pressure when it comes to teenagers and kids, but the truth is peer pressure affects all of us all the time. And we're usually not aware of it. So putting yourself in environments that, you know, really aren't you is, is not only dangerous in terms of you being exploited, but it's dangerous in terms of your character over the long term. So if you're a giver, don't go to Moldova and (laughs) And do not, do not go to Moldova. That (laughs) would not be a good idea. You you can read the book to find out why, Um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, Moldova, not a great place. Uh, Okay. So let's move on to uh, another idea that's that's really hot right now, I feel like for the past few years, is this idea of grit. We've had Angela Duckworth on on the podcast to discuss her book and her research about grit. Let's talk about, so like, is there really a benefit to grit or is it kind of over, overrated? Or in some cases, or is it one of those things where in some instances you need to be gritty and in some instances grit is not helpful? Uh, I I think definitely the latter. I think, you know, there, you, you, you can't be gritty about everything. We only have 24 hours in a day. If you never gave up on anything, you sim- simply put, you'd run out of hours in a day. Uh, you know, I, if I, if I never gave up on anything, I, I'd still be playing t-ball. You know, we, we need to give up on some things. In fact, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the issue of strategic quitting, where it's really thinking about how many things are you doing that are, you know, aren't really providing value, aren't really providing good benefit? And by quitting those things, you're freeing up more time, energy, and resources for the things you need to be gritty on. You, you know, it's, it's, it's that issue of realizing what's really important to you. What's that number one? Again, aligning with the work of uh, Drucker and Seligman, where doubling down on your strengths, doubling down on what's important to you, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day, period. The only way you get more hours is by quitting something else. You know, quitting something else frees up more time to double down on what's important. So, so grit is critical, but this idea of a universal never give up is, you know, completely unrealistic. You know, uh, actually, uh, uh, to Angela's credit, in one, of, in one of her research studies, she said that, you know, quitting things early on in life is really important. 
because you need to try stuff. You need to get out there and make a little bets, as Peter Sims calls them, to try things to figure out what to be gritty at, to figure out what your passion is, what you're interested in, what is worth, you know, dev- uh, devoting those K. Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours to. So, so grit is absolutely a fantastic thing. But we treat it like it's the end-all, be-all and should be applied to every situation, and, and that's fundamentally impossible. Right, so winners sometimes quit, is what you're saying. Uh, I mean, winners, winners have to quit. Well, how do you decide that? How do you decide it's time to quit something? Because maybe you are passionate about being in a rock band, or maybe you're passionate about your art, and you've been at it for years and years, and like nothing's going on. Like. How do you decide, like, I got to hang up the, the, the proverbial cleats on this so I can go work on something else? Uh, th- it's, a, it's a fantastic question uh, because once you raise the issue of, you know, quit and grit both being legitimate options, uh, vital options, then it's how do I decide? And Gabrielle Ettingen did research at NYU, and she came up with this fantastic little acronym called WOOP, W-O-O-P. And, and it's actually a quick little process people can go through to try and figure out, you know, what is worth sticking to and, and, and what isn't. And basically what it, what it stands for is wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. Because the, the interesting thing is a lot of us wish for stuff and it's, it's kind of fun to dream. Uh, but what the research shows is that spending time dreaming doesn't move you towards your goals. In fact, it saps your energy because our brains aren't very good at telling what is real, what is not real. That's, that's why movies are thrilling. So when we wish, we, people actually subsequently do less. What they need to do is first you wish, you dream about what you want, but then you need to make it concrete. You need to say what outcome do I want from this and make it concrete. Then all of a sudden, you, you know it's something that is actually achievable. The third thing, and here's where it gets tricky, is the obstacle. What's standing in the way? Why, why, why can't you have what you want? What is the problem that's blocking you? And then fourth is a plan. You know, how am I going to overcome this obstacle? Now, what's interesting about that is it, it's a useful little tool for helping you start to get to make a plan and to figure out what you want and how to get there. But there's a secondary effect that's really powerful in terms of the grit or quit uh, issue. And that is that when you go through the wish, outcome, obstacle, plan, the little whoop exercise, If you find that with your plan, you feel energized, you feel ready to take over the world, that means that what you're thinking about is probably legitimate. It's probably something you should be doing. In her research, she saw that when people felt energized, that means this plan was realistic. When people went through it and they felt kind of, you know, down or, or, or they just didn't feel up to it, they didn't feel energized, often it was because their plan wasn't realistic. You know, I, w- I want to be emperor of Australia by Thursday. You know, that, that's, that's not a very realistic goal. And you, you, you shouldn't think that that's, that's going to work. So taking the time to walk through wish, outcome, obstacle, plan often gives people that inkling of, is this something I should double down on or is this something I should let go and turn my attention to, to other issues? All right, so don't do vision boards. Don't do the secret. <laughs> don't do the secret. You can start out there. Okay, you, you start, start there. Don't, there. Don't, don't stop there. Exactly, exactly. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll keep my vision board then. No, <laughs> I don't have a vision board. I think I did it one time, but I, I don't. It's been a long, long time. <laughs> I'll admit I had a vision board once. All right. um, So here's another piece of advice that we often hear. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And people often say that cynically. It's like, "Ah, well, he just, he's not really smart. He just has connections. Is that really true? Um, The the issue there is, you know, what I started out talking about 
is the issue of extroversion versus introversion. And the truth is both are important. You know, it depends on the environment, it depends on the issue. So I guess the quick answer is it depends. But the the response is, is really more nuanced than that. You know, extroverts, you know, often often do much better in terms of, you know, success metrics. There are also a lot of downsides in terms of, in terms of well, wasting time and in terms of, in terms of, you know, how they, how they spend their time. Introverts, you know, often lack in terms of building that great network and across the board in terms of getting a job and get promoting in a job, getting a salary increases in a job, having a big network is key. But introverts across the board are much more likely to become experts in their field. You can, you can generally, on average, you can tell whether somebody's grades are good or, or are, more, are, are better or, or worse just by knowing introversion, extroversion. Introverts, on average, have higher grades. They, they're far more likely to get PhDs. They're far more likely to get Phi Beta Kappa keys. Uh, introverts, you know, have all that extra time. And it, should they choose to spend it in an arena, experts are, f- they're far more likely to be experts in their field. Whereas there's one study that showed, what was the wording? Extroversion is inversely correlated with individual proficiency, which is a, f- a fancy way of saying the more of an extrovert you are, the worse you are at your job. <laughs> so, you know, there's the issue of networks, which can, can really be powerful. Having a big network, I even looked at the research on drug dealers and drug dealers who have bigger networks make more money and are far less likely to be incarcerated. Across the board, big networks are helpful. On the other hand, hey, you know, being, if you're a computer programmer, you know, that's a very solitary job. If you're a writer, that's a very solitary job. You know, so your proficiency is going to be oftentimes more important than your network. So which job you pick can become, you know, critical, which arena you're in. But the truth is very often, most people are not at the extremes. Most people are not extreme experts or extreme introverts. They're ambiverts. They're somewhere in the middle. And what we need to decide to do, every, most individuals who fall into the middle of the bell curve in terms of introversion, extroversion, need to think about which side of themselves do they need to turn on? Is this a situation where I need to be more extroverted? You know, I need to make an effort to socialize or is this a time where I need to, you know, turn off notifications, shut the door, buckle down and, and, and work hard as an individual contributor? So, you know, it's really networks are extremely powerful and introverts need to spend some time there. But depending upon which career you're in, you need to strike that balance between developing a good network and, and becoming an expert in your field to the degree you can. Yeah, you mentioned in the research that most Olympic, high-level Olympic athletes are introverts, right? Like, they're just, they just focus on their practice. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's funny. It was, I was surprised to see that. But when you think about it, even team athletes, you know, how much time are they spending doing free throw after free throw? How many times are they spending more time sprinting on the track or time in the batting cage? You know, those individual skills that need to be developed, it requires, you know, a lot of time just head down doing the work. Uh, and so, yeah, it was very surprising to me to, to, to see the percentage of, of top athletes that say that they are introverts. And I mean, so uh, networking is important, important. If you're not naturally an extrovert and so like networking seems sort of icky to you, what kind of research have you come across on how to network without f- making it seem gross? You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, hey, just pressing your flesh here, you know, here's my card. 
Absolutely. And, and it's funny, there's, re- there's actually research that, that supports that. Uh, Francesca Gino at Harvard did research showing that, yes, it's like most people see transactional networking as icky. And, and the people who don't see it as icky are often powerful people. They are the people who need it least. So the people who need it most find it the most repulsive, which is, which is a sad irony. But, but there are a number of things people can do to build their network without feeling gross. You know, rather than going into it with a model of networking, which is kind of a, a formal clinical word to begin with, uh, taking the perspective of friendship, of making friends. And the, the best first step that I've seen in the research in terms of networking, frankly, is reactivating dormant friendships, you know, is going on LinkedIn, going on Facebook, looking through the contacts on your smartphone, who are people uh, who, who, you know, who are already your friends, who you haven't been in touch with, you haven't talked to in six months or a year. That doesn't feel icky. You already know them. You know, they, you already have a, a connection. It's not going to be difficult. All you have to do is reach out, say hi, and then, you know, continue to follow up. Make that person more part of your life. That's a very simple way. The second step, I would say, is there's research by uh, Brian Uzi and Sharon Dunlap on what's called super connectors. And what that is, is if you look at uh, the contact list on your smartphone, you're going to find that a disproportionate number of your friends were introduced to you by a handful of people. Those are your super connectors. Those are the people who are big extroverts or they're the hub of networks deliberately. You want to spend disproportionate amount of time reaching out and talking to those people because they are really, you know, they're super connectors. They have big networks. And when you're looking for that next job, you're looking for that next opportunity. Those are the people who are most going to be able to to assist you. You know, so there's a number of easy things you can do. And then past that, be a friend. You know, talk to people. Try and find things you have in common. Don't immediately be asking people for things try and find ways to help others be a giver in Adam Grant's terminology. It doesn't have to be an icky, an icky affair, you know, if you, if you handle it the right way. All right. Let's uh, talk about work-life balance. So there's this, you know, idea that, you know, women are always talking about having it all, right? Like want a career and a, a good family life, but you should highlight research that, you know, and the assumption is that men can have it all. Like they have a great career and a great family because there's a wife at home taking care of the family allows them to have their career. But you, you highlight these stories of men who could, didn't have it all. Like they had fantastic careers, but their family life was just garbage. Can you talk about some of those examples of people who's men who sacrificed family for, I don't know, career excellence? Yeah, I mean, you see this across the board. Uh, Howard Gardner at Harvard did did research on a number of you know top performers, and what he found was that they almost made like a Faustian bargain where they basically gave up everything in order to be at the top of their field. And that's the, the, the problem we face is that if you want work-life balance, then the issue is balance. It's not extreme. And that means it's not extreme in terms of results. When you look at, when you look at so much of the research by Dean Keith Simonton and Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and, and other, other people who, who focus on, on top performers and expertise, uh, what you see is more hours equals more results. Uh, you know, there might be diminishing marginal returns, but but overall, more effort, more hours equals more results. So at some point, you have to draw a line. And when you look at some of the people I detail in the book, Albert Einstein, Ted Williams, you know, you see that these are people who sacrifice their relationships. And that's usually what suffers is relationships because relationships require consistent time and energy over time. You don't, you don't just have an annual, it's like an, it's not like an annual doctor's visit. You need to spend time with your friends and family regularly for them to be a part of your life. You know, Albert Einstein, 
just kind of retreated into his head trying to trying to find you know trying to find that next that next big discovery and he had a contract with his wife about on what terms she could interrupt (laughs) him and it was it's it's kind of makes your stomach turn. He had another son who was institutionalized, and I, I don't think Einstein saw him for the last ten or twenty years of his of his life. Uh, his other son said the only project my father gave up on was me. Oh man! Um, you know, he basically just sacrificed. We we think of Einstein as this guy who did some amazing things, and he most certainly did. But but it was a Faustian bargain, and Ted Williams, you know, just. He just played. It's like I, the joke I make in the book is that he didn't play baseball because he wasn't playing. He was taking it very seriously, and it's all he did. And he was great at it. But the problem is, if you want a well-rounded life, you have to draw a line. You have to say at some point, "This is good enough." You have to settle at some point, and that's up to you. And if you're a very driven, very achievement, uh, very achievement-focused person, it can be very hard to draw that line and and step back from the table. So, I mean, I guess there's a lot of insights or advice we can take from this. If you are achievement-oriented, you might consider foregoing family, or if before you get into family, like make sure your wife or significant other like knows what they're getting into, right before they they jump in with you. Oh, uh, Ted, Ted, one of Ted Williams' wives, he had three, threatened to write a biography that was titled, My Turn at Bat Was No Ball. <laughs> when, they, when they divorced, before the, the judge finalized the decision, he, he turned to the wife and he said, is there any way you two can, can work this out? And, uh, and his wife, Dolores, said, are you kidding? Um, you know, he was just that extreme a person and and that extremity you know helped him in terms of it helped Ted Williams in terms of getting ahead uh, so yeah I think it's very good if, if your partner understands what you're like but more important than that I would say it's still important for 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 any achievement oriented person to draw some line because the results aren't this doesn't lead to happiness. It, res- it leads to achievement. It certainly leads to achievement, but it, but it may not even lead to being number one. There may be somebody bigger, stronger, faster than you are, and and it doesn't lead to a well-rounded life. It doesn't lead to 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 happiness, and uh, it's a danger. So everyone needs to have a personal definition of success. Everyone needs to have a line where they say, "This is good enough for me," and that can be an extreme line. That can still mean working sixteen-hour days, perhaps. But when you get to hour 17, you need to stop because it's, it just, just does not seem to lead to good things for anyone. Yeah. And I think you talk about research about this idea of work-life balance has actually made today's 20 and 30-somethings more miserable than, say, our parents or grandparents when they were our age, right? Yeah. The, the thing there is that it was – Basically, the, the issue didn't really exist before, you know, and that's and that's something that that immediately made me scratch my head was that decades, you know, decades ago, people weren't talking about work life balance. And that's because there has been a fundamental shift. You know, part of that is driven by technology. You know, part of it's driven by changes in the world. But the, the key issue here is that the doors used to close at 5 p.m. It's like when you watch an episode of Mad Men. And, you know, the office stops. <laughs> and now the office doesn't stop. You've always got your cell phone with you. You can always check email. You can always be texting. That, that oh, I, oh, I'll have to get that document from the office tomorrow. No, the documents are in the cloud. You can get them right now. You have the option to work 24-7. 
And when I spoke to Swarthmore professor Barry Schwartz, uh, wrote an excellent book called The Paradox of Choice, uh, he talked about that, where the issue is you have the option to work 24-7, so it's always an option. And that weighs on us. Before, the doors at the office closed at 5 p.m., it was decided for you. So you could just go, throw your hands up, hey, I'm going to go home and be with my family, play with my kids. Now, you know, that phone buzzes. You know that that project's incomplete. And at 9 p.m., you have the option to go work on it. So it's always a temptation of sorts. And that becomes a really difficult uh, push-pull because you're always having to choose. And it's easier when someone chooses for you. So the work-life balance conundrum is that we need to make a choice. We need to draw a line. And, and everybody needs to draw it for themselves because the world's not going to draw it anymore. You need to say, hey, uh, I'm stopping here. I'm going to spend time with my family. And if that means I don't get the promotion, well, that's okay with me. But that's a very difficult line to draw and a very difficult decision to make. And most of us don't want to make it. But, but sadly, uh, you know, now the onus is on us. Right. And so I think a lot of that's managing expectations too. Because I think that research about 30-somethings being more miserable than 30-somethings a decade ago was that, I guess like teenagers now are like happier because like they have these high expectations, right? Because they're told like they can be anything and do anything they want. Like that didn't happen 30 years ago. It was like, you went to the guidance counselor and said, all right, you're, you're going to go be a mechanic. And like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Or you're going to work in the factory. And then when they became an adult, like they like realized, okay, things are actually better than I thought they would be. Now, young people have these high expectations. They get into adulthood and they realize their high expectations aren't being met and they're just miserable. Yeah. So it's like, I guess like 30 years ago, people like had very low expectations for adulthood. And they ended up happier because their expectation, their reality it's exceeded their expectations. Young people today have super high unrealistic realistic expectations and they just are miserable because reality doesn't match those expectations. Oh, I totally, I think Barry Schwartz told me the same thing is that, you know, is that accepting a certain level as good enough and managing expectations is, is really key. And now what's really hard is, is with, is with the internet and television, we're getting to see the top 0.0001% of successful people, whether they're the most beautiful, whether they're the richest, the most accomplished, the best athletes, the best singers. We are, we, you know, expectations are off, are off the charts, you know, and it's, it's impossible. So when you combine these completely unrealistic expectations with the ability to go to work 24 seven, then you know, ambitious people are, are in a, a really bad shape, you know, really bad shape because they're, they're going to be inclined to overwork. They're, they're, it's, they have these crazy standards and the ability to run on that hamster wheel until they kill themselves. And so that's a really difficult combination. And, uh, and I, and so it, it makes sense why people are struggling with it. Yeah. Will, have you seen Twilight Zone? Do you ever watch like old episodes? Oh yeah, like the Willoughby episode. Remember that one? Really? Like, no. Which one was that? It's the guy where he's on a train. He has he he has a dream that like he's this like overworked off you know corporate drone. He has this dream that he uh, gets off on this train in this like idyllic nineteenth century town where everyone's just wonderful. And it's called Willoughby, <laughs> and it ends up like Willoughby. Like he ends up in Willoughby. He finally gets there, but it's it's like Willoughby's funeral home. Like he mm-hmm. he dies because he got so overworked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's, a, it's a great episode with a lot of existential meaning. Uh, I, I love Twilight Zone. Well, 
Eric, this has been a great conversation. There's so much more we could talk about. Where can people go to learn more about your work? The the URL for my blog is a little difficult uh, for people to, to, to pronounce. So if, if they just Google Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog, or if they Google my name, Eric Barker, they can check out they can check out my blog and the latest I've been posting. The best way to keep up with what I'm doing is to, to join my email newsletter. And my book is available on Amazon.com. It's called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. So you can search for that or my name, Eric Barker. Awesome. Don't forget the RSS feed. Oh, dude, RSS is, <laughs> RSS is, uh, I mean, sometimes the older tools, uh, you know, rolling old school uh, works in terms of RSS, man. There's no doubt. That's right. All right. Well, Eric, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thanks for having me on, man. My guest today was Eric Barker. He's the author of the book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It's available at amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out his blog. Like it's certainly one of the few blogs I read regularly, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And while you're at it, sign up for Feedly or some other RSS feed reader and subscribe to his blog on your RSS feed reader. Just get all your news in one place. There's no Facebook algorithm telling you that you're not going to be interested in that because your Aunt Trudy didn't like it or whatever. And there's not all that crap that Twitter has in the, the feed as well. And while you're at it, sign up for the Art of Manliness RSS feed. You'll love it. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Barker, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it over the years, I'd appreciate it if you give a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you all who have t- taken the time to give a review. There's been some great ones in there, also some great constructive feedback. We take that into account to help improve the show. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.